Hey fam, this is part two with Dr. Tommy Curry. If you want to hear part one, go to episode 79. I'm not an economist either. I tried to read the primary sources and, you know, I'm not sure if I missed this anywhere in the studies, but something that I thought was kind of tricky with the studies is it was taking black men, black women, white men, white women as, you know, kind of atomized individual forces and not looking at households. And it wasn't really talking about how, you know, they kind of make this thing as in white women aren't really um with white men like everybody's exactly, on, on yeah. their own but the truth of the matter is white people mostly marry each other black people mostly marry each other that white man's really strong curve is benefiting the white woman too like the yeah, white woman yeah, yeah she's the one who's marrying the white men also a lot of times that individual income um track that might be happening could a lot of it could be happening because a lot of those white men whose income is going to the stratosphere can afford to take their white women off the job market and absolutely that could be, be causing their income to kind of flatten out by choice you know they have a man who can uh afford to have her stay at home so like what happens is when white women marry white men um they're even if they seem to be doing the same as white women, I'm sorry, doing the same as black women, they're actually kind of going off further into the stratosphere. A lot of it's by choice because I meet a lot of professional white women who are like Ivy League lawyers, investment bankers who choose to leave to uh, stay at home. They decide, hey, the working world's not for me and I have uh, a family and I want to stay at home and I have a husband who can carry it. Whereas when black women stay by themselves you know they're not getting that boost and when they marry black men um they might actually be getting uh 
pulled down a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's kind of what the Brooklyn study was uh, getting at. But the Brooklyn study kind of bothered me because it was kind of more focusing on how black men pull down uh, black, black women. women more than talking about how white women actually share part of white male privilege. Yeah, and I again, this is this is what I mean, right? That if we if we choose to look at things in a way where we're always going to say black something's wrong with black men, then we're not going to get the full force of the study. We're not going to see the kind of sexual or gender vulnerability that black men actually suffer. And again, the this is what I this is what I just don't understand. We say that black men have privilege. We say that black men are patriarchs, right? Um, then if that's true, then why do they why do black women not get a bump from marrying black men? Because they're that's what happens to white women when they marry patriarchs. And we seem to have no conversation about why these theories are are inaccurate. And I think that one of the grossest misrepresentations of this stuff is when we talk about domestic abuse. Because again, as and I've been very clear about this, I think that when gender theorists or feminists or intersectionality theorists uh, say, oh, well, we're talking about gender uh, and, and patriarchy. What they really mean is we're just talking about violence because there's no, there's never any analysis of why black men are patriarchs. They'll just say, well, black men abuse women. So you're not really talking about that. You're just saying, okay, well, there's violence involved. And when violence is involved, we think then that black men um, have to be our the people who commit violence are patriarchs, hence they're patriarchs. But patriarchy is a system. Patriarchy is a, a, a economic, political, cultural structure of ruling class men. And this is similar to the definition we get from R.W.S. Connell, where these people control property and wage structures and ideological apparatus like the media. And, you know, that's what a patriarch does. That's not black men. So yeah, the it's same- the same argument people use against uh, reverse racism. You know, they say, well, black people don't control institutions. They don't control systems. They don't control the media. They don't have the power to institute institutional or systemic racism. Right. All they can do is just maybe bully, uh, call names, maybe yeah. uh, do a criminal act. But they can't actually have the force of a system behind exactly. them. And people get that when it comes to race. But when you bring it up in relation to gender, it's like the brain, the brain just snaps. Well, no, you don't- bring it up to gender. The idea is like, well, black men are men and black men are violent. Hence, none of that stuff matters. Right. And again, again, this is, this is what I say is that you have to start looking at evidence. You can't, you, we can't keep defining black men and boys in this country based on somebody else's opinion of them. We certainly don't do that for other groups. And, be, the fact that black men are being told they can't study themselves outside of different views that and, and look, I'll, let's lose the case of domestic violence, for instance. Right. You know, there, there's there's all kind of arguments about well, black men abuse women because of patriarchy. But when you look up black male victims of domestic violence, there's no literature. There's there's just practically none. Like I've gone back 20 years and I could find maybe one or two articles where they say things like, oh, well, the number of black male victims in the black community are the same as women. But there's no serious studies. I can't find any interviews with black male victims of of domestic violence. So then that's taken automatically as the idea that there are no black male victims of domestic violence, that all that the only black men who are victims of domestic violence are are because the women are doing it in self-defense. And that is just so woefully untrue. And, and one of the things that really upsets me about this is, see, when you talk about white scholars who are studying domestic violence, they change their minds all the time. So, like, there's this guy, Michael P. Johnson. He comes up with this idea of intimate terrorism. You know, in one of his articles, he says, well, look, you know, I don't even, you know, I, I initially thought that intimate terrorism was caused by patriarchy. And he's like, well, I no longer think that. 
And then you have another woman, Denise Hines, who says, well, look, we disagree with Michael P. Johnson's taxonomy because Michael P. Johnson thinks that intimate terrorism is largely perpetrated by men. That the whole idea, because he creates different categories of violence, like situational, violent resistance, et cetera. And he's like, intimate terrorism, those are male perpetrators, and most of those people are women. And then violent resistance, that's mostly women doing this in self-defense. So they do a study and say, well, listen, let's start interviewing male victims. And now what our study finds is that male victims are, in fact, victims in intimate terrorism in intimate terroristic relationships where women are the primary perpetrators and that these men who are being victimized are using violent resistance in self-defense against women. But why are there no articles like that about black men? You see, this is not because black men who have historically been experiencing some of the worst forms of intimate partner homicide and disproportionately, uh, amount, disproportionate amounts of intimate partner violence aren't victims. We know they're out there. Is because nobody cares enough about black men to see whether or not they're victims or perpetrators of domestic violence. Because the stereotypes about black men says that they're violent. So you just assume that they're always perpetrators. And this is what I mean. This stuff is mythology. We're not having a real conversation about what the Chetty study means or the Brookings study means or what, you know, intimate terrorism means, because the argument is black men are violent, black men abuse women. And if black men don't succeed, it's because we believe that black men don't try hard enough because they're lazy, idle and non-intelligent. But then when we look at the studies that say, hey, when you look at children, when you look at young boys in kindergarten through through, you know, K through eight, K through 12, Black teachers think that black girls are smarter than black boys. Black parents believe that black girls are smarter than black boys. So then what are you what are you doing to socialize these young boys to believe that they can succeed academically, comparable to or better than their female counterpart? You see, everything with black men becomes their failure. It never becomes, well, what did we cultivate in them? What did we not see in them? What did the society miss in them? If a black man abuses somebody, what happened to him? What caused him to act violently? Was he abused as a child? Was he sexually molested? Because in our exploratory study, we find that, yes, black boys are sexually molested by black women in their communities and some by black men. How did that affect them? And it goes historically, too, because uh, Thomas Foster, I think, at DePaul University, has all that literature about the abuse of black male slaves and yeah. How often do you see uh, that mentioned in uh, slave movies or slave narratives? That's why when oh you yeah don't. one of the the a couple of the slave movies I really like are like uh, Goodbye Uncle Tom and Mandingo and Drum and they're considered to be very exploitative and they're considered the bad slave movies. But I think deep down the yeah. real reason they are is because they make white liberals uncomfortable. Because they kind of oh, indict, indict them to a certain degree, whereas the ones like Two Years a Slave have like Brad Pitt and Benedict Cumberbatch and like the good and conflicted white people yeah. they can identify with, you know, where they're not all just monsters. But those 70s so-called exploitative bad ones are more likely to show like that type of wide range of real abuse, including the abuse of uh, black men, which really surprised me. Those movies had... A lot of that too, the rape of black male slaves, along with the rape of black black female slaves. Oh, and yeah. I, part of me always wonder if that's part of the reason why they're so um, maligned compared to a lot of other things. Something that's not popular to say, but this is really what it looks like to me. I feel like 
a lot of us internalize this idea that white people are our parents, like the whole white mommy, white, white daddy thing. Oh, yeah. And as black men and black women, we were in this kind of sibling rivalry for white mommy and white daddy's attention. And I think like because a lot of this reaction I saw to the study, what it felt like to me was white mommy and white daddy are paying more attention to my sibling. And not, oh, absolutely. And now because they want because they want the resources. Yeah, they want the resources. Because they want the resources. And 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 look, here's the crazy. You know, here's a funny thing. I saw. I I couldn't watch all of Twelve Years a Slave, um, Twelve Years a Slave, but I watched the beginning. And in the very beginning, the black guy is raped by the black female slave. Right? She just rolls over and gets on top of him. What's weird? That's not even in the book. I just want to just mention that real quick. Uh-huh. Right. That's what I'm saying. That's what's interesting, right? Like, and you know, and I was talking to it to a colleague, and I was like, where's the notions of consent? What are the notions of violation here? You know, I mean, and I'm not saying it, I mean, it's not to say, oh, well, the black black women were raping black men, but it was to say that what what does it mean to even have a concept of rape during this period of time by fellow slaves? Right? You know, and, and this is this is I mean, you're in slavery. You could die today or tomorrow. Hmm. What does it mean? Like, what is the concepts operating when you do something like that? You know, and and the fact that we don't see the black male body as vulnerable. Right. And that's what I'm always saying. We don't even see black men as vulnerable in the conditions of slavery to rape or the sexual coercion. There, that, that woman laid next to him. She didn't she didn't ask for consent. They, they didn't even talk. She got on top, did her business. It was like, I'm done. And, and and what's important about the fact that it's not in the book is you can't even use the excuse, hey, we were just reporting what was in the book. The creators invented that out of whole cloth. And exactly. I actually even wonder more, like, why was that um, necessary? Um, I'm going to mention one last thing about those studies and then uh, move on to some other topics or whatever else you, uh, you want to talk about. But this is what's interesting. I don't know if you know this. Did you see when, when Brookings did a um, tweet referencing their um, study that they eventually had to give an apology for? They said, uh, black women have similar odds of escaping poverty as white women. Yes. Until they, Until they marry black men. Yeah, and it went super viral. And what was interesting is a lot of the black men are trash crowd. They all jumped into the uh, replies and the mentions. They got a thousand retweets, um, 1400 likes and 200 replies. And a lot of it was like a lot of angry black women saying, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I should say black women, but that specific type of black feminist, they were coming in to uh, say, yeah, that's why uh, black men are trash, et cetera. And all this stuff. And it was done in a very clickbait way because when you actually saw the um, original, I mean, when you saw the actual piece, it wasn't that um, clickbaity and as um, as provocative. It was a lot more uh, moderate in tone. And when I was calling it out, uh, one of the uh, one of the study authors even wrote me and said, "Hey, just so you know, we don't write the tweets." And I'm like, "I know you don't write the tweets. I'm not coming at you." The study itself is not particularly mm. inflammatory. I'm talking about the fact that they chose to frame it this way because they knew the way that would be most acceptable, you know, to get attention. And uh, yeah, but, but this is what's interesting that I don't think a lot of people realize. I dug a little further and for a week they um, had been putting up that same uh, study uh, like over a couple of days in tweets but nobody was biting or cared when they put it more uh, fair or sympathetic. So one was helping black families do better 
starts with helping black men do better. New research suggests that was Brooklyn's first phrasing. 17 retweets, uh, 30 likes. Then they put nearly half of all black youth in America grew up in the bottom income bracket, vastly affecting their chances of escaping poverty. And they linked the study again. 37 retweets, 31 likes, um, very few responses. Third time, black women have similar odds of escaping poverty as white women, but both groups lag significantly behind uh, the upper mobility of white men. Black men lag even further behind. 17 retweets, 16 likes. Uh, Then the last one, nearly half of all black youth in America grew up in the bottom income bracket, vastly affecting their chances of escaping poverty. So that one's kind of linking both black men and black women Uh as struggling. Uh, 18 retweets, 16 likes. But once they uh, did a gender divide tweet that pitted black women against black men and blamed black men for, you know, their problems, that... uh, 1,500 uh, retweets. So it's kind of like, in a way, we kind of do it to ourselves because we... It's profitable. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's profitable, but we we respond to it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. all those other headlines are just as important for Black people to read. They should have been just as alarmed and replying and outraged at those first four neutral phrasings. But um, we're kind of trained to just bite at the bit for that. Uh, you know, that, that chance to chew each other out. It was very... You know, like they realize, okay, you know what? We're not getting attention. It's been a week. And sure enough, they struck yeah. gold when they hit, did that fifth one. Actually, I mean, yeah, we should we should actually do a, um, a blog or a piece about that. Uh, because, you know, it's, yeah. it's really, you know, when you break down the tweets that way, it's really interesting because it also shows how people, how quickly even black scholars are to endorse anti-black male sentiment. Right. So if we if we take seriously that we don't want this to be another Monahan, then why didn't do you clickbait and 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 share literally the phrasing of Monahan? Because the Monahan report says that black women have aspirations for college education, et cetera, and black men don't. And the reason that we know black men are patriarchs and are being disadvantaged by the female led households is because it's creating a situation where black men have no aspirations to be like the men they see in the larger society. Right. That's literally from the Monahan report. So you see the exact same thing being stated in that tweet. Black women have aspirations. They succeed in education. Black men don't. So when you when you marry black men, it pulls them down. So, you know, this is is, just I find these things ironic because it's like, you know, we have all these black academics saying, oh, we don't believe in Monaghan. We reject Monaghan. And then you have them not only endorsing this tweet, Mm -hmm. which is very Monaghan, Monaghan ish, (laughs) but also it, it builds on the idea that black men are failures. And again, this is why I say, like, what are. What are the what avenue do we have right now for black men to even ask these questions? Like, I think a great research question is, why did this get a draw so much attention even from black people? I think other research questions are, why are we not having conversations about black male victims? Why did why did we only pay attention to the Chetty and Hendrick and other authors study when they wrote it and not when Ronald Mincy wrote it in 2006, 2005, 2006? Right. Like, why does every other group of subordinate masculines have literatures and books and conferences? But the minute that black men try to talk about their subordinate positions uh, as racialized men, it's called they're called MRAs and they're and they're said to be crazy. Like, surely clearly there's something going on with black males in the society. And we just don't have a way to see what that is right now. 
And then and, and that now that you have these black men doing, you know, you're doing podcasts like you're doing, you're doing shows trying to say, listen, we have a problem. There's a double standard here. There's some effects that we're not paying attention to. There's scholars in the academy trying to have this conversation. Why are people so hostile to it? Because you have people, you have people, white scholars who argue things like white women are abuse people more than men. You have white scholars that says there's no such thing as male privilege or patriarchal advantage. And then they go out and test it. Right. Like that's what they're that's what they're doing. So what is it about black people that makes us so committed to one ideological position that doesn't evaluate people based on whether or not we're presenting evidence for or against the position, but rather not if you take a position that's outside the mainstream, you're a good or bad person. And that's our problem that with black people, our intellectual productions and our intellectual debates are based in morality. You're a good person if you're intersectionalist. You're a bad person if you're not. You're a good person if you say women are oppressed the most. You're a bad person if you say black men or some other group are. And that's how we divide up the intellectual territory or geography amongst black people on Twitter and in the academy. But then when somebody says, well, look, let's ask a research question and go figure it out. Oh, well, you can't do that. Well, you have valid statistics, but you have the wrong interpretation. And think about this. This is from a graduate student. I believe Miss Muse is a grad student, right? She's a PhD candidate. Uh, yeah, yeah she's a PhD candidate. She hasn't even finished yet, but she can tell a full professor clearly the wrong interpretation. I don't work in the area, but it just feels wrong. You see, that's what I'm saying. And that's not to pick on her particularly, but I'm saying that that's the way that we handle black men in the academy. Everything we say about them is intuitive. So the reason the Brookings is too got thousands lit because that fits with our intuitive judgment about black men. Black women are fine. Black men are the baggage. Right. Yeah. And also it had to be in the most inflammatory uh, way possible because even they weren't getting it when they were doing it sympathetically. They had to, um, yeah, do it very inflammatory to uh, do it. Uh, I wanted to move on to one last topic, but before we do, um, like nothing to do with these studies, I wanted to know if there's anything that you specifically wanted to uh, bring up and talk about today as far as anything in the news. Um, The last topic I want to talk about was um, Stefan. Stefan Clark. Yes, but I want to save that. For, I want to save that for the end. But I know you had uh, several things you wanted to talk about, and I want to make sure that we got to everything before no. we. Uh, look, I on. think. Look, I think my. I mean, at this point, I think I've been pretty consistent. <laughs> you know what I mean? With uh, yeah, with yeah. What, what my positions are. Um, the the reality of the situation is that black men are being exterminated in this country. And that black men are doing worse than black women on a lot of measures. And that doesn't mean all, but it means that on a substantial portion of how we think about black men and how we understand black males, they're not doing very well. And I think that it's insulting that we endorse theories and scholars who make a living out of telling us, well, don't look at the side. Don't look at black men. It's, you know, it's like they're like, oh, look how bad that poor victim. Like, oh, no, don't look over there. And that's again, this is why I'm saying that. We need new conversations and new theories. This Chetty and Hendren study is not the only study. There are going to be other studies and they're going to find the same thing. And they're going to find it in cohorts when you compare white men to black men and white men to black women, et cetera. You're still going to find downward mobility. So the question becomes, well, what is it about our theories? What is it about our gender politics that excludes us from being able to see and empathize with black men? And that's what my field, that's why I wrote The Man Not. That's why I wrote and created Black Male Studies, because what we're doing in intersectionality simply can't answer the empirical evidence. 
right? The stuff that we're doing on Twitter about black men's patriarchs can't explain why white men have so much more lethal aversion and violence directed towards black and brown men. But black male studies can answer those things because they have theories. They utilize theories that are designed to study the, the, the degradation, the, the degrading and the violence against these black males. And I think that what we need to really start doing is educating people about some of these alternative ways of thinking. Social dominance theory, for instance, why patriarchy targets outgroup males. What are the realities of trauma and sexual violence? I talked to and interview victims of sexual violence. I, I have. And this is the thing. Outside of your program and a few other people, I haven't had any scholar, feminist, intersectionalist or otherwise say, well, what do you think? Let's have a conversation about these black men who are being raped by their mother's friends and in some cases their mothers. So what is it that keeps blinding us to the suffering of black men and boys? That's a real thing that we have to answer. And that's what I would challenge any of these scholars who are sitting out these tweets about making this another Monaghan or saying that black men are not more oppressed or whatever the 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 claim of the day is going to be or the hashtag of the day is going to be and ask them, well, then what's your answer? Because anybody could say that we shouldn't say that black men are more oppressed than their female counterpart or that they're not. So then how do you explain that they're incarcerated more? How do you explain that they have lower life expectancy? How do you explain that they fall out the middle class at higher effort? Right. We let's get beyond the hashtag. And I think that until we push people, you know, until we push these other fields like intersectionality or black feminism or any of these other theories of masculinity or gender to start accounting for the evidence and actually engage in a dialogue about scholars who actually study black men and theorize about them, then we're just going to reproduce this erasure. And that's why I think that theories like intersectionality and intersectional visibility have to be called out when they erase or perpetuate a genocidal logics that says that we shouldn't look at black men's death or their incarceration numbers and focus over here. We should sympathize with black women because they are affected by the system as well. But you can't compare 64,000 black women in jail to almost 900,000 black men. It's, it's an unfair comparison. So in some cases, the disadvantage of black men have to occupy center stage when we're talking about that kind of violence. And like with most things, people get it once you take it out of uh, the specific context of black men. Because, for example, there's a lot of... Um, MRAs, like actual MRAs, who when women bring up um, rape, they'll be like, well, what about, why are women in the face of rape? What about male on male rape? Like what happens in jail, et cetera? And, you know, men should be the face of rape just as much as women. And then what people will say is, oh yeah, well, there are male on male rapes and, you know, that happens in jail, but by and far, a vast majority of rapes tend to be um, female victims. Like people totally get the idea of proportionality. They'll tell the guy trying to get men to get 50% of the rape coverage. You know, they'll tell him like, you can't get 50% of the rape coverage because you're not 50% of the rapes. But right. when, when the media or whatever wants to focus primarily on black men, uh, when it comes to police shooting or um, the prison industrial complex, Suddenly, it's totally legitimate um, in the academy, in media, and in the Twitter activism to say, well, what about uh, black women? Why are you not focusing on black women just as much when it comes to the prison as you are in black men? And that same logic that everyone gets the of, you know, when it's dealing with uh, white people or raceless, you know, race neutral analysis, the brain just short circuits somehow when it um, has to do with uh, black men. 
And one more, one more. Th- yeah, they lose all that common sense. Then, yeah, huh? yeah, they lose all that common. These all that common sense. And when you lose common sense like that, a lot of times because emotion is driving you, like emotion. So I think it's a kind of emotion. Yeah, yeah, bias, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. There's a bias or an emotional, visceral reaction against um, that. Uh, another example that uh, lends credence to what you're talking about, about how people just kind of check their minds at the door and why can't we have these conversations with black men? There were a couple of uh, people on Twitter and they were the, these kind of people who are very popular on Twitter for being quote unquote woke. But their wokeness consists of doing that pop intersectionality, you know, not even a very rigorous intersectionality that gets you a lot of clicks and retweets. And they're like highly educated people. Yeah. They have like big followings, but they don't really know uh, what they're talking about. And it's not like I have that training, but I try to know where my limitations are and not veer into that. But they were having this conversation about black men um, and how black men, you know, we have to discuss how. They're just uh, doing so well. And there's these pay gaps that happen between black men and black women and black gay, black straight men and black gays and et cetera. And this is before the Chetty study came out. So people weren't. Doesn't the black gay literature say that black, black gay, the studies I've read say that black gay men actually get more employment opportunities and higher incomes because. Maybe it was just more employment opportunities because their seat perceived as less threatening. Yes. But that was only one or two studies. Yeah, yes, that's exactly where I was going. Um, the Chetty thing didn't come out yet, so people didn't really push back on the black male, black women pay gap part. But a bunch of people came into the comments uh, posting that exact study. It's at David Padula, I think out of uh, Princeton, where he said mm-hmm. like, um, being gay doesn't help white men. Um, it helps black men, yeah. Yeah, so a white gay person gets... Uh, employment discrimination versus a white straight person. And it was interesting. They said, they said a black, it doesn't help lesbians either. Like if you're. No, no it's black, specifically tied to the, yeah, the threat construction of straight black men. Yeah. Yeah. So, so black men, specifically black men, uh, when you put things on the resume, that, that signal, they did studies that signal that it's a black man and gay. Um, when you control for everything else, the straight the gay back men get significantly more higher significantly better salaries offers etc than the straight black men and what's interesting was people kept putting that study in there and they just kept talking like it didn't appear like they literally just kept having the same conversation and ignored but and they were responding to everyone who was agreeing with them but the people who put the link the links and there's like five, six people, they just kept ignoring them. And if they were responding to nobody, then someone might say, okay, they just stopped checking the thread, but they were responding to people before and responding to people after. So they didn't even engage it to even try to come up with a semi-plausible debunking. But that's how um, comfortable people are with just not paying attention to that type of data. It was very... No, it's just... But again... You know, these, like I said, man, these are biases and we're not going to overcome those biases unless we make some serious challenges and inlets to how people are perceiving uh, discrimination and, and racism and misandry. I mean, there's no accident. I mean, you know, I think I think many black men know or understand that experience. Right. They're, they're constantly trying to figure out how can I make myself more safe? How can I appear to be less violent? Right. Because that's what that's what many. Uh, straight black men, you know, and, and gay black men, too, because, I mean, in their literature, people still perceive them as being violent. So that's what a lot of black men struggle with. So the idea that we can just ignore that finding because it's inconvenient to us yeah. uh, doesn't speak well for our intellectual acuity. 
you know, we have to start we have to start making sense of the world and we can't just keep apologizing for other people not holding our beliefs. And when these studies come out, we have to take them seriously because there's very little work that's being done uh, that actually supports that actually supports our understanding of black people generally, but black men specifically. Uh, intersectionality has been tested, but in the cases where it has been tested, uh, it doesn't come out on the side for how theorists think of it. Uh, it still shows that black men are more progressive or that black men have unique experiences. I mean, especially when you do the study between social dominance and intersectionality theory, it just it makes more sense to take a social dominance lens when looking at black men. Um, so, yeah, man, I think I think that when things like that happen um, and people post the study, but then ignore it. You know, we have to ask what's the what's the biases and and what's the motivations of the people. And I think that black scholars, because there's so much racism in the academy, you know, Twitter is the way that they make themselves into stars. It's not so much based on what they publish. It's not so much based on the challenges they're waging against literature. It's based on well how popular they are, and you become popular generally by agreeing with people, not questioning them or telling them that they're wrong. Uh, but no model exists like that for white scholars. I don't know a white scholar that has as many Twitter followers as many of the black public intellectuals. But these people still get jobs. They still get praise. They still get awards, et cetera, because the model of white scholarship is what are you studying? What are you contributing? The model for black scholarship is, well, how many people like you? And that has tremendous effects for and, the kind of scholarship that we produce. And I noticed that. uh with a lot of um, the white people who kind of give out the jobs or kind of give people platforms, they hold a lot of us to a lower standard. And because some of the things that they let people uh, print, as long as it is uh, has a type of pop intersectional feel and will throw black men under the bus and have any type of uh, specious argument, they'll just publish it. And oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, it's almost like, um, uh, Mike, Mike has a great, um, analogy. He says, he says like that they kind of view us as like when your kid brings you like a fucked up drawing, but you know, he tried his best cause he's a kid. And, and so you put it in the fridge anyway. You just like, um, yeah. yeah, you know what you tried, you know, uh, we can't expect much better for you. Like, like this is good for what you can do. And yeah. you know, everyone knows it's not a good drawing, but, uh, we're proud that you gave it your all. Like, like I feel like a lot of these publications, based on what they let um, black people print, and like you, and what you pointed out about, you know, they just want to know how popular you are, that people like you. Whereas uh, with white people, they want you to kind of have a certain type of rigor in what you're going to, uh, they're going to let you publish. There is a certain type of patronizing feel that I get from it that really uh, bugs me, but people are just so happy with representation. They don't really care how they get um, put on. It's a very... Well, unfortunately, that's true. I mean, it's it's a real problem. It's a problem in the Academy. And, you know, the question, again, the question always is, you know, what do we do about this kind of stuff? And for the most part, we're just not willing to question it in any serious way, you know? And I, again, this is why I say that I think that part of the issue with a lot of the reactions that we talked about at the beginning of the program is that there's just never been this nothing nobody's ever attempted to do what i was what i'm doing nobody's ever attempted to sit down and have a real conversation about the status of black men in this country um, that's not just based in their empiricism and their studies but in in the reality about where black men are and that's what's different because most people that study black men are yeah. not doing theory they're doing you know education they're doing some kind of you know disparity towards something uh 
<laughs> and what kind of what kind of makes that tough for you is that makes you become like everybody's target because uh, at least with intersectionality, there's like dozens of people that they could you know split that target role. Absolutely. But uh, you kind of end up, I noticed, becoming like the poster child. Black male studies or black men or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the last thing we want to talk about, and this is something that um, I, I'm putting Mike on the spot. Mike disagrees okay. with you on, and I'm on, and I'm on the fence about. I well, we could we could disagree. That's the that's with. the beauty of being different people. Yeah, yeah. We could disagree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think this would be a. Uh, um, All right, Mike. Let me have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, yeah, why am I talking? I'll let, I'll let Mike uh, bring it up. Well, actually, I had I read a tweet that you put out. Yeah, if I can, uh, okay, I should have had it up already. Where you responded you see, I to, to be uh, about my tweets, and you still got one. Okay. <laughs> no, I got it because um, I uh, well, your tweets are uh, protected, but I screen capped it. All right, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, because I, you know, I, obviously, I'm a big fan of yours, but sure, sure. I had uh, hold on. Where 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 is it? Okay, and, and, and to, and to give a little bit of context, it. Mike and I were having this disagreement with each other before we saw okay. your tweet. Okay. So uh, yeah. Okay, this is the tweet that I'm going to read. It says, "We cannot continue to base our reactions to black men death on whether or not they are respectable. Yes. We must insist that we are outraged by all black males' death. Black male studies insist that all black males' life has value." Mm-hmm. Now, now the debate. Now, with this, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. With the, with the specific case, um, obviously you're familiar with some of the tweets that have been dug up, right, by Mr. Clark, and uh, some of the positions that uh, 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 Stefan Clark yeah. had regarding black his blackness and black women. And for me, that's just you know. I, obviously, I would never go out there and say that he deserved what happened to him because I don't believe that he didn't deserve what, what happened to him was uh, uh, murder in my eyes. They yeah, shot him in yeah. the back six times, and but at the same time, it's like when you reject your blackness, you rejected me, and I don't feel I don't feel that I you know I have a duty to go out of my way to support, you know, well, I you understand, know, but, support but this is, after this that. is what I mean when I say, you know, we have to think about our, our own people with compassion. Right. So, I mean, and I, I'll just use a, a great example. So there are tons of, of people, black feminists, et cetera, that say all kind of horrible things about me. Right. They say, I hate women and that I'm, I guess, an MRA mm-hmm. or whatever that is, you know, but if, if something happened to them, or if their rights were trampled on, do I say because they didn't like me that that makes what happened to them right? And I know you're saying you're not defending the murder. All right, I'm not. I'm not trying to put that on you. But what do we say? What is it? So what does our fundamental disagreements mean in terms of whether or not his life had meaning? And I could personally disagree with Mr. Clark. I do disagree with Mr. Clark, right, about the things he said about blackness and the generalization that he makes about black women. Because I have two little girls and I'm married to a black woman. But what is as a as a scholar, as someone who studies black men, I understand the previous trauma that could have been had had at the hands of a black woman or if he had no trauma, the way that society socializes him to be or his own self-hate and low self-esteem or his possible depression. Right. All these are possible scenarios that account for Mr. Clark's tweets. And I'm not saying that that's an excuse, but it's context. So how do I react then? 
to black people dying when so many of us die? Do I say, well, look, let's go check the Twitter account? Do I, how do I feel if a black woman who shared that black men are trash, do I, do I not protest for her because she, she displays misandry? I have, I have black women I know that I know have raped men. I know I have black women I've met I in would. my life that were friends of mine that talk about having non-consensual sex with their boyfriends. Do I not march for them? You see, it just gets so complicated because I don't know where we draw the line. And what I see happening with this debate is the same thing with Eric Garner, where people say, well, he was brought up on a sexual a statutory rape charge, I think, or child molestation charge. So somehow I should not Eric Garner. Um, what was it? It was Mr. Uh, was it Alton? Eric Garner was? Alton Sterling. Yes. Yeah. Not Eric Garner. Alton um, Sterling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I saw all oh, this yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah. Alton Sterling right? was. He was. And then again, was you know, about, uh, the reason that uh, Eric Garner came up is because there was that piece from, I think, Madame Noir or somewhere where they were like, we shouldn't march for Eric Garner because of domestic abuse. Right. And this man was innocent. But they're like, but I don't. Black men abuse women. So we shouldn't mar- march for people who are murdered by the cops. Like these things don't make any sense. Right. Because, again, I mean, I know the data. I, should I not march for women either? That's 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 the way that we police ourselves and pathologize ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we say we understand the system of racism and white supremacy. And we, we seem to have no understanding of it whatsoever. It's not surprising that in a white supremacist society, black people hate blackness. In fact, that's one of the things that lets us know we're in a white supremacist society. And now that we have social media, the fact that one black man says that he didn't like black women or dark skinned black women and hated himself. What? what I mean, the tweets say that he hates his own blackness and other black people who share that blackness who happen to be women. Why is that surprising to me? Right. I just don't know. I mean, but in a society that is, a, that is against us based on our blackness, voluntarily us. trying to disassociate yourself from that. You know, you kind of lose your, you know, that herd protection is like. I agree. But what I'm saying is look at how many victims we have in our own culture that that do that. Right. Like these black women who are saying these black men are rapists and trash. They're doing the same thing. These black women who are saying. But individually, if, 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 you know, if that happened to one of the uh, one of those type of black men are trash women, I don't I wouldn't be out there, you know, advocating for her. I understand either. that. And I'm torn about that, too. But it's still a black person, and I have to understand it is. But if they don't, but the difference between like a like one of those black men are trash women versus, you know, this uh, brother Stefan guy, he he would when he responded to someone's Black Lives Matter tweet with like All Lives Matter, you know, he he actively. I agree. Disassociated himself. And I, I don't think you can reassociate him with, but you think, know, but after he death. died because, but he died because he was wrong. You see what I'm saying? Like he, he died because they, yeah, he died because his view on all, all lives matter is clearly not the case. He was racially profiled. Oh yeah. For it, sure. Right. But I mean, his ignorance does not, does not determine the well, the, the worth of a life. And, and that's, I guess, that's what I'm saying. Like, I understand personally. Right. Because I do. Because, you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time, like because I think that men are trash or black men are trash is a genocidal accusation. Because when I study genocide, that's what they call Armenians. That's what they call Jews. So I'm very offended by that. Right. But at the same time, again, this is what I mean by studying black people with compassion. You have to we have to understand that these black women are acting from a place of personal harm, trauma, or some of them just may be careerists. But I'm not going to use my disagreement to judge what their life is worth. 
And I think that that's the flip side of what many of these people are doing to not just, you know, uh, Mr. Clark, but also to Mr. Garner and to, to Mr. Sterling. They're saying that because you did something that we don't like, we don't have to support that or be outraged by the fact that you were killed unjustly. And those two things seem to be completely different categories. Well, I think there's some of that. There's some of the people that say that he deserved it because of his view. I will, you know, he didn't deserve his viewpoints. Don't mm. make him deserve to be shot like that or killed like that. But well, well, my take on it. I'll give you. I'll give you my take. Like, um, I was in the middle because my thing was, um, do we want to wait? Do we want to wait for hit for the right person? to get killed i put right in quotation marks to care because what happens is to me i feel like if you let this go um unpunished or or unretaliated against then you're just kind of leaving the same cop out there or the same system more emboldened to go do do it to eventually um get somebody who was not an all lives matter black woman hating person and do we want to wait for that to happen when... Um, well, we don't have to wait for it to happen. It's, 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 it's happening as we speak. Yeah, yeah. It's always, it's always, going, it's always going to happen. But I'm saying if we keep making a, a constant assessment and saying, I'm going to fight... Because even when we try to fight against all of them, we're barely making any headway. Exactly. So to me, if we start trying to litigate every single one on its worth and start even fighting less of them, I mean... Going with both guns blazing is barely uh, making a blip. And I just feel like we don't really have that luxury. And when I notice with white people, they take every single opportunity to advance um, white supremacy. Yeah, they support murderers and like class people. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and but, not just, but not just that, they'll support people that they think contribute to so-called white genocide. Like, like and what I mean by that is uh, there's been a lot of stories, right, where the type of woman that they would normally hate and the type of woman that they would almost wish gets, as Mel Gibson says, uh, raped by a pack of niggers or killed by black people because they're dating uh, black men, like, yeah, yeah. Mel Gibson said that, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. There's been several stories where white women have dated or married black men or were chronic daters of black men. They always dated them. And then one of the black men um, was accused of killing that white woman, even though you know that they would hate this white woman, call her a mud shark, a race traitor, say white genocide. When they see an opportunity now to get to use her as a tool to get the big bad boogeyman of the black man suddenly these uh four channers and alt writers will turn this uh white woman that you know they would have hated alive and if they were school shooting they would have probably killed her themselves they will suddenly be the biggest like justice for tiffany you know oh, absolutely. yeah so like i feel like they don't have these qualms when it comes to taking down um black people well i think they kind of have a luxury that we don't have you know I, look i completely agree this, this is their world you I, know? Look, I completely agree and I, I i feel the i mean i feel the argument you know what i'm saying i i do at a personal level mm-hmm. or maybe it's an emotional that's, that's what i'm saying, like, that's what I'm saying. I, I feel the same way but there's another commitment there yeah i just want to say one thing they say you said they have a luxury but it's actually i think it's the opposite they have a luxury to let things go because they already have us under their foot. So if anybody had the luxury to not capitalize on every opportunity to get the other guy, it's 
the white guy and they will still act like act like you know they have to take every single chance to put their foot on a black white supremacy yeah 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 we're, i think we're the ones who don't who don't have that luxury to um let anything anything slide you know because but we're see, kind of on the on the bottom but here's what gets me though like white people you know and i guess i guess this is what I always i always find strange you know because I, I constantly give presentations across the country and I tell people, it's like, listen, if you're really concerned about rape, you'd be considered you could be concerned about white men and white women. If you're concerned about domestic abuse, you're concerned about white men and white women. Because of their population, they're the biggest abusers out there. You're more likely to meet one of them to abuse somebody than you would to meet a black guy that abuses somebody. But then that seems to have no impression on how we think about black men. So then you get something like this, where it's like, well, a black man said he didn't he didn't want to marry or didn't like or find black women attractive and he hates blackness and you know it's about everybody's life, right? And then we're like, well, he didn't take the right political stance or he doesn't like black women and black people. He wanted to be Asian, et cetera. And we say, fine. Well, we're not outraged. Now, notice what happens. We're not arguing. So we could disagree with him and we can say he's absolutely wrong, but we're not out. We're, we're judging him. We're not judging a system that killed a man who actually agreed with white supremacy in the system simply because he was black. And see, and that's why that's why I say at a personal level, I understand but if the argument becomes, well, we don't like the individual and we're not attacking the system, we're not attacking the practices, we're not attacking the ideology that allows them to just kill a black man who by most means is, is practically conservative politically, then what are we doing? Because they're, they're, they're surely going to shoot somebody like us if they're going to shoot somebody like him. No, anybody could get it. And he, he didn't realize that when his, with his All Lives Matter comments that he he he's basically given cover to, you know, the people that are doing this, I, I he's, agree. He's, he's supporting them. I agree, and he supported his own demise. But he's still, but he's still a victim, and that's what I. My view is because, a brother, I understand you one hundred percent. But my view is is that all black people, when something like that happens, are victims, despite their personal opinion. So the same way that I don't get along with many feminists on their views of black men, if somebody goes out and shoots a black woman and she happens to be feminist, I'm still going to be like. You know, this is outrageous. We need to, you know, advocate on her behalf. If a black man who's a Republican gets killed by cops, I was like, this proves why he was wrong. But we're outraged because what we're attacking are systems and practices where we value every person's life as a black person. And while I adamantly disagree with Mr. Clark's with Mr. Clark's tweets and Mr. Clark's choices and his views of blackness, what I take to be a large extent self-hate and his view of black women, et cetera. I mean, that's just kind of where I come down on that side. Not, and everybody doesn't have to agree, but I just, but, but like, I, I guess I would challenge the people who disagree. How far down do you want to go? How, I mean, how far down that rubber hole do you want to go? I will. I mean, that's a good question. You know, like you said, where do you draw the line? Uh, you know, I don't know. Because are we going like Alton Sterling? Like, oh, well, he was accused of sexual coercion, statutory rape, so we shouldn't march with him. Do we go to the point like a black man uh, was in a domestic dispute with a black woman? Do we go, you know, and, and, and again, how, what happens when we start flipping the flipping the gaze? So we know we know the prevalence of statutory rape and sexual coercion in our communities. So do are we not mar- now not marching for black women who sexually abused or sexually molested a child? Are we going for a black woman that's been a you know perpetrator of domestic abuse? You know, are we going to do the same thing with black homosexuals or same sex couples do this stuff? I just you know, it's how far do we want to go down? Because a lot of a lot of the domestic abuse associated with black same sex couples is, is is linked to internalized homophobia. So are we are we going to say well they're homophobic so we should march for the the the, the gay victim because they internalize their own self hatred? Nobody would ever say that, you know. I mean, for, 
I mean, for me, for me, one of the interesting things about this too is, like I said, I don't think they're doing this type of hair splitting when it's time to uh, railroad a black man. You know, like uh, George Zimmerman turned out to be like you know a heinous abuser oh, yeah. of white women. So you think, oh, he, he's he's hurting um, the white race by you know how he's treating his his white neighbors and how he's beating black women. But they're like, hey, look, this guy helped take a black down the street. He's still gonna be. Um, um, a, a hero. So I feel like we can't really kneecap ourselves. The the way the reason why I said I'm kind of in the middle is that my compromise is I'm not going to try to make anybody support um Stephon Clark. Like I personally do lean toward uh supporting him because of the injustice. I only ask that the people who um choose not to support him, like for example, in Mike's case, Mike is the kind of consistent person who. He would be the same whether it was, you know, a black woman bad mouthing black men or a black man bad mouthing um black yeah, women. I understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so like there's a lot of people who I I see online and I know from their history, I know from their beliefs, like they're very anti Stefan Clark. And I totally know if the genders were reversed, they would be like, uh, oh, black women aren't given room to be problematic and whatever. They kind of bothered me because I could tell that you're doing a double standard that you would not um, do. So I feel like if you're going to support Stephon Clark, be the kind of guy who would also support a black woman who would be uh, problematic. And that's where I fall in. Like if if this was a black woman who was on some black men are trash business and she was one of these type of black women that we uh, mentioned who spreads a lot of white supremacist things about um about uh black men if she got Sandra blanded you know i would still be in the same so you know like i feel like i would be consistent either way and mike even though yeah. he's on the he's i wouldn't come out and say she deserved it no but no no he didn't deserve what happened to him and we know right. why it happened to him it happened to him because he was a black man and they can do that to black men Okay. Um, yeah. So the final thing I'm going to say, because we're uh, basically out of time, and I think Dr. Curry, you already said that. Oh you, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have so much time with by. Um, uh, you said that you're that you have nothing else to say, right? Yeah. No. I, no. I think I think we've covered everything, gentlemen. I, I think that I think that a lot of the things that you know uh, that you mentioned to me, uh, a lot of the interventions, the problems that we have uh, with even accepting the Chetty study, you know, is is why we need a black male studies. You know, it's why we need to take a real serious look at black men and the relationship to other black people in the community. Um, and I think that, you know, in the case of Miss Muse's uh, criticism, and again, I'm saying Miss because from what I found out about her online, she hasn't finished her Ph.D. Um, so that's why I'm not calling her doctor. So I hope if that's correct, you know, Miss Muse says um, it's largely based on its inability to see. Um, it's this it's this way of taking. Uh, what you already think and saying that everything in the world has to uh, both confirm and conform to that. And I think in the cases of the things that I study, uh, where there is in some cases previous literature, like in the case of domestic abuse, uh, but there are no studies specific to black men and boys or in the cases of statutory rape, uh, since I don't know which, which data she's saying I'm misinterpreting, um, that it's very dangerous to just assert with full confidence uh, that everything you think has to be right. There has to be an openness to new information, an openness to new empiricism, um, despite the fact that you may have certain orientations about the world or take a certain political bend like being pro-black woman, et cetera. Um, that's not considering other sides. Uh, this is why we have scholarship. This is why we have discussions. This is why we have debates. Um, so and I think this could benefit the listeners, too, that 
the reason this Chetty study is causing so many problems for black academics and people in the community is because it's showing something that black people have known for a long time, which is that black men are targeted within white patriarchal capitalistic societies. And I think that Jim Sedanius's work does a fantastic job at this. I think my work does a great job of trying to explain this. I think Global South Masculinities does it. So it's really time that we try to re-socialize and re-educate the public beyond kind of these decadent theories about gender that were formulated in the 1980s and you know, one of the first books about bell hooks. We have to move beyond what, what, what could have been effective for some, but just does not explain our social realities now. Uh, great. And I just wanted to say uh, one other thing. Uh, yeah, a lot of people were uh, kind of upset about the Wendy Muse thing. And at the Coley, oh, holy shit, they were, I see y'all uh, the Coley, man. Oh, people were. They told us we need to grow some balls. Grow and- some balls and say we pussy yeah. out. This is this is what this is what this is what I'll say. I'll say one thing in defense, and I'll say one thing that I will um, cop to. In defense, um, there was not much specific said, and when there was there was like no specific claims to really respond to. We asked for specifics. She said that uh, she wasn't prepared to talk about it. We didn't have specifics, but when she did give specifics, like she said that she felt that we um, kind of put focus on the um, traumas and hardships of black men to kind of do a kind of comparative um, oppression and Uh that um, we need to stop doing that. And when she gave us a specific, which that was, I pushed back and said that we only highlight the oppressions of black men to show that both sides get it and we need to stop the gender divide, that the reason we do it is to fight against the gender oppression but so, you know, I do not think that we did not push back on anything. But but I will say is in the future, and this is something that I think I'll do, if somebody is not prepared to give specifics about any particular critique, we'll table the Yeah, they can't just drop they can't drop names. They can't name drop yeah. and and then just dip out. Yeah, because because we can't push back without specifics, but we shouldn't allow the non-specifics to be included, we will tell them to come back and we'll talk about it when there's the specifics. So that's uh, what we'll say about that. And yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah. well we appreciate Dr. Curry because he always has his receipts. I've, I've listened to him across every, I've listened to him on Yvette, on Tone, on um, uh, Matthews, uh, everywhere. He's always got, uh, references he could call up just like that. So, I mean, you can argue. You, you don't have to argue with that, and you're gonna have to bring your own references and 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 data to the uh, argument too, and uh, leave the emotions and the feelings. I'm going to add one more thing too. I have a lot of faith in the audience. That's another thing too that you know the audience has to kind of understand. Like, I don't think of you as people who just hear something and you're the kind of people where the last person that whispers in your ear, y'all are off and running, you know? So I have faith that if somebody says something, you have the wherewithal, you've heard Dr. Curry on this show before, you know, you are not going to be like, I do have that faith in, in the audience. So that's just something I wanted to throw out there uh, as well. And I wanted to, Thank Dr. Curry again for um, coming down. And Absolutely. you're always welcome to come down. You don't even have to wait for us to invite you. We're at, 
Yeah, if you ever the promote, I appreciate that. And Thank um, you. I'm done, Mike. Do you have anything uh, you want to say? I just want to say thanks again too. Uh, I, I really uh, look up to Dr. Curry. Uh, he's inspired me to read more and to uh, improve my um, comprehension abilities because you know of the denseness <laughs> of some of his work. And uh, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you know him being gracious with his time with us. No, I appreciate the invitation to conversation, brothers. I, you know, I it's it's it's, it's strange because when you're trying to tell people what they've gotten wrong. The assumption is the only way you could do that is through, you know, critique and adversity. And I know what the other side is saying, and I know how they view black men, but I just really want people to say that, listen, you can, if you disagree with me, I'll provide you everything I'm reading. If you want to read my articles or the studies that we're doing, I'm happy to engage in the conversation. But to continue to frame a black man that's simply interested in studying black men, largely because he... I know that hurt black men hurt other people. I know that hurt black men kill themselves. I know hurt black men go to jail. To say, to tell someone who deals with victims of domestic abuse and rape that they should somehow not talk about that research um, just seems fundamentally unethical and, and dehumanizing to me. So while I understand these criticisms that people are raising, these people have the luxury of never having to meet or hear black men cry because of so much pain they've endured in their lives. They ignore it. And that's fine for them if they want to live their lives that way. But that's not how I live my life. I, I deeply engage this stuff and I theorize about it and I write about it. And I come on programs all the time to talk about what my research is doing. And every time I say something on a program, I publish an article that's repeating what I've said or where I found it, et cetera. Because I'm trying to build up a scholarship that long after I'm gone, people can say, listen, here's somebody that thought differently about black men and boys. And we can use that research because maybe I got it wrong, but maybe somebody could pick up where I left off and get it right. So I think that a lot of the framings that these people have about what's going on to, with black men and boys is not only ignorant, but I think that it's dishonest. And I think and when I say ignorant, I'm not saying that as a slight. I think that it's based in ignorance. They don't know. But in the cases where they do know, they're just being dishonest about what it means for black people in general. And, I, you know, like I said, I think we have to just keep checking that. All right. Well said. And that's a wrap. Everybody have a good night. Good night. All right, sir. Thank you. They come under the system of white supremacy. If you are a non-white person, you come under the system of white supremacy. You come under no other system on this planet because there isn't any other system for you if you're classified as non-white. You come under the system of white supremacy, and it doesn't make any difference what your title is of what your position of the day is. You come under the system and you will be beholden to what the white supremacists want. Regards to who you are, you're not outside of that system. And when they give their dictates, when they send you out to do things, I mean, they say you're going to have a job here, you're going to have housing here, or you're going to be down by the riverside, this is where we're going to build some houses for you. Uh, we're going to give you a Soweto, I mean, uh, or, you know, a Shantytown or whatnot. That's it. When they speak, that's it. And if you say, well, I don't, I don't believe you're doing the correct thing. I don't go along with that. I'm a black leader. And I don't think that's the way for you to go. Well, you don't think what? You have to have a house. You have to have a family. You have to have an income. You have to have money. Where do you think it's going to come from, boy? Hmm.
Where do you think it's going to come from? It's going to come from me. So how can you consider yourself to be a leader and you are dependent on me? They say, well, uh, you know, I have my own church and all like that. And so, uh, you know, I, uh, the people, I, I, I get my, I'm the leader of my congregation. No, you're not the leader of anything because your congregation is beholden to me, not to you, because you are beholden to me. And I can cut off you anytime I get ready by cutting off your congregation from you. Because I pay them on these jobs. You don't. That's why you're able to get a collection in the plate. Now, don't get tested with me. That's the voice of the white supremacists. That's what supreme means. Uh, Dr. Frank B. Wilderson III. Um... I use this to where the term pops up. I'll say that the term pops up on the program uh, pretty reg regularly. Uh, necrophilia. Uh, and I think you uh, assert pretty strongly that the whole of society, as constructed under white supremacy, uh, is predicated on necrophilia, uh, feeding off of black people and negating uh, the humanity of black people. Um, and I just wanted before move forward, if you could kind of explain what you mean uh, when you use the term necrophilia and how that how that plays out under white supremacy. I mean, in, in clinical terms, it, it, if I'm understanding it correctly, it's been a while since I've actually looked at the clinical definition. But to, to be crude, <laughs> it means having sex with a corpse, you know, so a kind of a kind of performing. Uh, an aggressive sexual act on a on a dead. It's sexual and it's parasitic and it's and it's a repetition of the murder that's all, that's always already there. And I really think that that's apt um, with respect to you know I talk about it in um, cinema, but you could also look at the African slave trade from uh, before the Europeans from 625 A.D until about 1300 A.D. And, you know, what you have is a situation in which the um, Arab countries on the eastern side of, on, uh, on the ocean, uh, looking at to the eastern side of Africa, uh, enslaved hundreds of thousands, millions of, of Africans. And the, the purpose of their enslavement was sometimes economic exploitation, but often it was um, for uses that kind of boggled the mind. In other words, uh, the capturing of, of masses of young black women for um, harems. And there was another practice, which was called uh, for young black boys, called leveling at the scrotum. I'll repeat that, leveling at the scrotum. And that's where they would capture thousands of black boys between the ages of 12 and 18 and uh, not just castrate them, but cut off all of their genitals um, up to the scrotum. And the boys uh, who did not bleed to death were then taken across to various parts of, of the Arab world, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, various places like that, and made into eunuchs. Now, the, the thing that fascinates me and horrifies me about that is that when we think of, of the when we think of the slave trade, we think of the European slave trade as being really functional and utilitarian 
in nature for the production of, of crops and the enhancement of capitalism. But we forget this combination of death and sex, necrophilia, that is also there in the slave trade that happened on ships in the Middle Passage, for one, and that long before the Europeans came was central to um, the Arab slave trade, which is to say, I'll sum up here, that every culture has what they call um, taboos, you know, things that you cannot do sexually with people who you think are people, meaning your kin. And yet, in the unconscious, there are all these fragments and, and uh, drives to do all kinds of sexual things uh, which are taboo. And if those drives and desires don't get in some way satisfied, what I mean by that is displaced onto something else, whether it's um, worked out through psychoanalysis or onto pornography or something else like that, you know, then, then your own society, the people you think are people, are going to suffer from that. My point is that the Arabs use the Africans as the targets on which they, A, displace their taboo sexual behavior, number one, and number two, the years and years, I mean centuries, of this kind of violent displacement onto African bodies also worked to solidify and cathedralize the sacred nature of the African family so that there are things that we're doing to African girls and young women and African boys that are in our imagination, but we would never think of doing those things to our wives or sons. And without that outlet, we might have had, the Arab, the Arab world might have been destabilized internal to itself. So our dead bodies produce a kind of sexual stability and, um, and social stability to the world of our masters long before the white people came and got us to make cotton. Keep that in mind, I guess, the next time you watch uh, Monsters Ball or any number of uh, films, uh, Shadow Boxer, any number of these films where... Shadow Boxer, yeah. Exactly. Um, man, man, oh man. Um, okay, I guess before, I, I do want to get to Monsters Ball and, and get a sentence in on that. I think we discussed that when you were on the program last time, but just to get a quick sentence in later about that. Um, I wanted to, because I think this is also key to your book, you talk about how... Uh, Fundamental. Black people are not humans. Uh, they're not even bodies. They're just flesh uh, that can be used, abused, anything. Violence is supposed to be happening to black people um, worldwide. Um, and you say that when you look at other theories that attempt to explain, pardon, other theories that attempt to explain or analyze uh, oppression, racism, white supremacy, if they do not start from the premise that black people worldwide are not humans, their humanity totally negated, that that theory ends up another constituent of white supremacy. Is that accurate? 
Yes, thank you for that, because that helps me understand my own writing. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Exactly. I think the chapter where all of this kind of solidified, where you're, you're, you're explaining why this is, um, is in the same chapter where you're discussing skins and policing, and you're talking about how the so-called white anti-racists uh, and other individuals, feminists, Marxists, uh, other people or other folks who have submitted their explanations to how to deal with the suppression and explain uh, the violence and oppression that black people face, uh, when they don't start from that premise, it just ends up being another means of policing uh, racism, white supremacy, and supporting that same structure. I was just, is that accurate? And if so, if you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, um, and just as you've lost your notes, it's been a while since I've read my own book, so, I, so we're going we're gonna to struggle together and help each other here. Um, maybe I could start anecdotally. I, was, I heard uh, a radio show uh, several years ago, uh, a black radio show in Southern California, where uh, the, this person was interviewing an executive from the Gallup poll. And this executive from the Gallup poll said that they do a, a survey every few years of people of color in the United States and about how much they feel a part of the American dream. I'm paraphrasing. And they said that, you know, when we, when we look at Asians and we, we survey Asians and we survey Latinos, we find that when we are, where the questions that we ask, uh, which are designed to elicit how much this person feels a part of the American dream, these questions are, are answered very positively. I feel very much a part of the American dream. If that person is um, middle class or above, but if it's a, it's a poor Laotian or a poor Vietnamese person or a poor Guatemalan person, then those series of questions are answered very negatively. I don't feel a part of the American dream. But he was saying that when we ask black people this question, regardless of class, they all answer that they don't feel a part of the American dream. Now, getting back to your question, the, 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 the typical you know, anti-black person would look to explain that by saying, well, number one, black people are lazy, number two, paranoid, uh, number three, they don't get out and work hard enough like the immigrants do. And so if they did all these things, um, they'd feel a part of the American dream if they're working class. And as for the, the middle class and the upper middle class and the white collar ones who said the same thing, you know, their problem is that they got to where they got to um, based on affirmative action. And so they weren't really qualified. So that would, that would be a typical way of not looking at the question. I uh, blaming the victim rather, but I think that if you take all those people seriously and you say that they know something about their condition, then we have to say that black people across class lines not feeling a part of the American dream is not a function of their black, but it's, it has to do with the nature of oppression in society. And I think that what I'm trying to say in the book is that um, all these theories of dispossession, whether it's uh, 
which, which I ha- happen to support, such as feminism and, uh, and Marxism, it's true that black women are um, oppressed by a certain patriarchal attitude from black men. But black women are not oppressed by patriarchal power from black men because we don't have patriarchal power. And it's true that um, all of us, except for maybe, you know, Oprah Winfrey or Condoleezza Rice or people like, or, you know, uh, Bill Cosby, uh, suffer class oppression. But class oppression doesn't explain our deep psychological sense of alienation, number one. And number two, it doesn't explain why the forces of violence don't treat us like middle class or rich people for those of us who are middle class or rich. They just treat us as as black. And I don't think that any of the political philosophies have gone into this particular question, which is what I started off with by talking about the Arab slave trade. It's not so much why did Arabs need to act um, to act upon in in ways that they would not act upon their own people. And it's not so much why did Europeans need slaves to work to death in the way that they would not work their own people. Uh, the question is why did they choose Africa? And this is a question I have no answer to. But it's a true question that the whole world decided. There's a global consensus. There's a consensus amongst people who kill each other, Arabs and Christians. But they agree on one thing, that Africans are slaves before the fact. And my point in the book is that no radical theory from Marxism to feminism to even indigenous liberation has been able to address that, or it seems to even be concerned with that. We have to think about that. The essential nature of the problem is that Africa and Africans are seen as and treated as slaves before we even break any rules. This is what the problem, this is the problem that the theories of liberation either cannot address or refuse to address And the deeper we as black people give all of our political agency over to those other theories of of liberation, the more and more those theories crowd out the essential dispossession that we experience. And so they actually end up liberating the working class, but deepening the enslavement of black people. And I, I think this this topic is very important because I see this trend uh, continuing, which should not be surprising. I mean, we are still in a system of white supremacy. I think if you are a white person, clearly, if you're white, you can be gay and practice racism. Uh, right. You can be white and a right. feminist and practice racism. So it shouldn't right. be, you know, surprising to anyone. But right. I do see this trend. You can also be black men and practice sexism. I mean, you know, like it, it goes lots. It, you know, you can be a black straight man and practice homophobia. You know, like those things go lots of different directions. Now, I would point that out to listeners. Now, I think that I suspect conscious act of white supremacy. And again, I can reference Dr. Frank B. Wilderson, uh, his program last week where he said 
clearly black males mistreat black females. It is incorrect. We should be doing everything that we can to stop that misbehavior. Um, However, there is not a structure in place for black males to call on to mistreat black females in mass. That does not exist. That does exist with the system of white supremacy where white women and or white men, white children, white old people, white geriatrics, they have a system in place that they can pull on to inflict violence on individual and or groups of non-white people. That is in place. And I say it is an act of racism. I suspect conscious any time a white person does that. When the discussion is on white supremacy and they shift off to, well, we want to talk about how black males practice sexism or how black people in general practice uh, homophobia, that you should keep in mind. I think that is a way of slipping the subject off the t- off topic, focusing on the problem, racist man, racist woman. Credit Dr. Wilderson on that. He just talked about that last week. Um, I was going to ask because I think it's very important in seeing how this continues, uh, even to this day. The recent vote in California, uh, 2000, it was the same time the presidential election, 2008, where they were voting uh, on the gay rights issue in California, and they blamed the black people. Uh, it didn't pass, the legislation didn't pass, and it was tons of articles where they were coming out and saying it's black people's fault. They're homophobic. They didn't vote for it. They didn't support this. Did you see? Uh, you know what I'm talking about, Doctor Seagram? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember specifics, but yeah, I remember that. Okay. But yeah. Is that? Do you think that falls in line with what I'm saying? White people continuing to practice. Uh, yeah. Re- mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I think that there's racism in gay movements. Yep. I think there's racism in women's movements for white people. Yep. Uh, as I said before, like I don't think that there's any social movement in this country, that if it doesn't consciously deal with race, it won't replicate it. And sometime in the process, as you make frequently the point, that um, even in the process of that, it's going to replicate it too, right? Hmm. Social movements are profoundly compromised by questions of race in this country. Okay. Uh, Before I move forward, I I do want to get your response. Um, What I said before... um, you bring up black males practicing, quote unquote, sexism. Right. Um, did what I say, did that or excuse me, what I said, did that make sense? Black males don't have a structure in place to mistreat black females individually and or in mass. Uh, and as opposed to white people, they do have a structure in place that they can call on to practice white supremacy against non-white people. There is there is clearly a different kind of there is clearly a structure. I agree. There is clearly a structure, both regional, national, global, that white people draw on to mistreat people of color. Do you see? Are, oh, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I agree with that. But I also have um, read and studied a good bit of the writings of black women and feminists about the ways that those issues play out in their lives. And I can reference those writings, but it's probably, I'm not the person to raise those questions because of the, either because of the need in this conversation to keep the focus on white racism. I'm happy to do that. Do, because I think this is important. Do, 
are you aware of any material or just even without material, do you have knowledge of a system in place, structures in place where black males can call on other sources? Like if well, I'm a black male, so can I call the police? I want to harm a black female. Can I call them and concoct a story and they'll just believe it and they'll pro go, they will proceed to harm a black female or groups of black females? Uh, is there an institution in place where I have structures and other people that I can call on to help me mistreat black females? Do you know of that to be in existence? No. Thank you. Oh, congratulations to you. My friend, look at that white woman you're with. God damn. <laughs> nigga behind you going, yeah, son, I'm with my girl, but yo, for real? That white woman's amazing, isn't she? Tell the truth. He's with his black girlfriend, like, nah, I don't, I don't know, but that, she's high level. That's a high level white woman right there. That white woman is, that is man, oh man, oh man. Black women get mad at that, but that is top shelf white woman right there. <laughs> you know how you can tell how pretty a white woman is? The value, you look at her and then you wonder how long they would look for if she was missing. <laughs> Come on, take a look, take a look. Look at this nigga, look, 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 look. I saw you look mad, sweetie. How long if you was missing? How long you think they were? How long you think they were? Exactly, she don't even, she went. the deal. I ain't saying nothing wrong. White woman's life is valuable. <laughs> What's his name? Joran uh, Vandersloot? <laughs> right? We find out he was a serial killer. Man, he kills women. That's what he do. He do it well. You know what I mean? We know the girl that he, that he you know, supposedly had uh, What's the girl in Aruba? Natalie Holloway. Right? But the one, he just killed a girl in Peru. What's her name? Um... Exactly. <laughs> Look how fast you said Natalie. You said Natalie. Natalie Holloway, that angel. Y'all said that like family feud. All right, name a white girl been missing for five years in the room. Of Natalie Holloway, survey son. A Peruvian girl that was killed yesterday. <laughs> what is that big head third world Peruvian bitch's name? It has to be Yoris or something goofy. <laughs> Don't get mad at yourself. I gave it to you. You saw how fast she said Natalie Holloway. Right here, said now she knew her name. <laughs> that white girl with Natalie Holloway. 